Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 18 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, June the 3rd. First, I'll be talking to Brisbane fitness entrepreneur Tim West, who is behind Aussie boxing gym startup Ubox, which has sealed a UK expansion deal. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslie about the economic challenges for the new Albanese government. But now let's talk to Tim West. Tim, tell us about Ubox and what you're doing in the competitive fitness market. Yeah, what we're doing in, in the market is doing what, what no boxing product has been able to do before, and, and that is to sort of scale. And, you know, boxing as a fitness modality has always been really, really popular. Uh, it's popular with, with sporting teams. It's popular with people training in the park. It's popular in gyms. But it's never really reached the same heights of scale as what other fitness products have, despite its popularity. And so, look, I went to address that, that particular problem and, and looked at what are the limitations stopping boxing scaling. And as a kid, I grew up boxing, playing league and boxing. And I, I saw the merits of it from a fitness point of view. But yeah, looking at the limitations to that and, and trying to address those. And we've kind of done that now. And now we're on this journey of scale. And so how do you do it? How do you, do, how do you actually do that? How did we come up with the business model or how would, did, we, did, we, did we crack the code for scale? Both. <laughs> okay, so the business model was growing up with a sport that I loved and I knew was great for fitness. And then when I knew that I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, going into exercise science, I knew the key to, to creating a sports-based fitness product was specificity. So I looked at the attributes of boxing and looked at what could be replicated into the world of commercial fitness and took as many as authentically as possible across to that business model. So we took the three-minute rounds from boxing. We took the concept of a rest between each round. We took the concept of, of bag work and, and pad work where we couldn't replicate the physical contact because we wanted to drop the intimidation. That's when we brought in the, the functional strength element to replicate physical demands of boxing. And we put that all together in a format that kind of gave people the opportunity to train like a professional boxer without the risk of getting hit, which we saw was a key 
limiting factor in, in scaling boxing was the degree of intimidation in that. Now, that, that we sort of launched in a business model and we did a pilot for that. And the pilot was so successful that we started to franchise a year later. And then within the span of four and a half years, five years, we've got 93 clubs across three countries and we're about to open the fourth and fifth country in the UK and, the, and America this year. So what are the countries you were operating in? So we launched in Australia and then we moved to New Zealand, which is a natural sort of progression. We opened in Singapore and we've got the first club opening in Manchester at the end of July, early August, and then the US by the end of the year in their summer. Uh, so in terms of the franchise model, you have other people running it. Is that right? Yeah, correct. So each store is franchised and we're unique that 100% of our stores are franchised. So the franchise operator takes out the franchise agreement and then is responsible to sort of, you know, grow their network and service their members using our programs. Um, interesting development in our programs is we've always had Danny Green, my business partner, my co-founder, um, doing the boxing element. But we've recently recruited Brad Harrington, who's the Wallaby strength and conditioning coach. And he's now overseeing the strength and conditioning elements. So we're really stacking the team. And the benefit that gives to the member is results. And the benefit that gives to the franchisees, they don't have to worry about the quality of the programming. It's all developed centrally and it's shared with them via the in-club technology. And of course, with Danny Green, he's sort of a highly regarded name in boxing, isn't he? Yeah. And, and take it back to when we first started, you know, this 2016 period, he was by far the most dominant boxing um, name in the country. He arguably still is. You know, George Cambosis is obviously doing very well now. But as for the, the, you know, the figurehead of boxing in Australia, Danny's been that for decades. And what he doesn't know about boxing, geez, there, there's not much that he doesn't know. And um, he's keen to pass that knowledge on as well. And this is a great format for him to do it at scale. And the way you've scaled it up is you've powered with, uh, you've, sorry, you've, you've launched a partnership with uh, Empowered Brands. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So we had every intention in opening in the UK ourselves. We actually took a lease or were finalising a lease in Twickenham train station at the end of 2019. That fortunately got delayed to the start of 2020. And we all know what happened then. You know, and we were still optimistic of doing it ourselves throughout 2020. But, you know, by the Christmas 2020, we realised it probably wasn't going to happen in any um, time soon where we'd be able to actually go over there and do it ourselves and this partnership opportunity came up with one of the UK's uh, largest franchise fitness operators and so it just made sense you know it made sense to tap into their network to have access to their infrastructure and and their their scale and we think we found a partner that sort of matches our ambitions for boxing in the UK which is you know, in the first instance, 250 clubs, but we think that that will go much, much higher in the UK, Ireland, you know, region. And of course, so you're talking about 2020. So, I mean, you had the pandemic happening around then. I mean, how has the pandemic affected your business? It was interesting because it kind of was contradictory. And I, I say this a bit, but it moved at two speeds. And I've heard this from other business operators. You know, the adoption of technology happened very rapidly and far quicker than it would have happened had the pandemic not happened, uh, but obviously the bricks and mortar business stalled and to, to a large degree. I mean, we still grew by 15% a year, but that was a lot less than the 45% or 41% the year before. 
And, and so it had that effect of, of speeding up our digital adaptations and the customer's interest in adopting technology. Um, we were able to dedicate a lot of time to building core technology to service the business. But we were very much limited and inhibited in operating the bricks and mortar gyms. So, uh, yeah, it, it was a tough, challenging period, but, but there was definitely some benefit to come out of it as well. Right, okay, okay. And uh, you've invested too in a omni-channel fitness product, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So within a couple of days of the, of the lockdowns happening in March 2020, we launched uh, a product called Train On Demand, which was an idea to give people access to a digital at-home format of, of that training. And, and we launched that just after so that members could still get value from our product because a lot of them chose to continue supporting the, the network um, through paying some of or all of their membership fees to help support the business. And so we, we were really focused on giving them as much value as, pro- as possible. And the adoption of that was so fast um, and it was being used so much that we really... We really um, progressed our plans to ramp that up um, a lot more. And, and that's where the Train On Demand omni-channel product came about because we tested it through this period out of need. It was so successful and our feedback was so great that we actually started developing that as a second stream of the business. And now it exists where you come to the gym, ideally, but if you can't make it to the gym, you can also access our product via the omni-channel offer. Um, the digital offer called Train On Demand. So out of necessity originally, but but has turned into a really important part of our business now. That's interesting. Now, I mean, but, uh, with this uh, omni-channel stuff, you're actually, when you're actually doing the boxing, you're actually doing it by yourself, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. You're following sort of shadow boxing. And a lot of people misunderstand shadow boxing because it it's an important part of every professional boxer's training is to shadow box. So... You know, it, it's a really valid um, format of training. And, and once people start to understand that and embrace it, they can get a great workout at home, whether they've got gear or not, just in front of a mirror. You know, and we, we combine all the functional strength elements to really give that conditioning side of it. And, and so they can get this great workout at home, even if they've got absolutely no gear uh, through the on-demand product. And of course, it also means that they're not actually going up against anyone else, which means they're not going to get hit. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a feature of, of our business in general is one of the limitations to boxing has always been this perception that you're not really boxing unless you are fighting. And that is a real limiter. 60 to 65% of all of our customers are women and most of them have never boxed before in their life. And so, you know, both the at-home and the bricks and mortar have that in common is that we don't have any contact at all in our training. It's the only contact you'll have is with a trainer holding pads for you. And, but, but, but that's it. And so it's an exciting format in that it gives the, the, the simulation of boxing, but yeah, takes out the risk completely. I mean, you'd be more inclined to attract people who normally wouldn't come into boxing at all. That's exactly right. And as I said, you know, more than 90% of our customers have had no formal training in boxing and never even considered other than the odd group fitness class uh, participating in boxing because a traditional boxing gym really does have that expectation. If they're going to focus on you, you have to be someone willing to box for their club. And so by taking that out completely, it opens the addressable market up 
um, significantly. And, and as I said before, that's one of the reasons that we feel like we've cracked the code for boxing because it's authentic boxing conditioning with absolutely no chance of getting hit. Right. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so you box is sort of just planning now to expand globally. Yeah, that's right. We look at the fitness industry globally in three key markets and that's APAC, which we obviously founded in. So that's a, an obvious focus for us, Europe, and we're using England as the launching pad for Europe and North America via the US. And we think the first clubs will open in New Jersey and the second suite of clubs will open in Texas. And if we can keep developing sort of in concentric circles, if you like, from those key countries, like we have in the APAC region with New Zealand followed by Singapore, if we do Canada and then even consider Mexico and do maybe Spain and, and France and Germany, you know, that will be really building out those three key economic areas. Well, Tim, it's been fascinating to talk to you and thank you very much for your time. Mate, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And now let's talk to economist Saul Islake. Well, Saul, what are the economic lessons for the incoming Albanese government? I'm not sure at this stage there are too many lessons. The Albanese government has come to office as almost every newly elected government, federal or state in the last 50 years has done, with a fairly narrow mandate going back almost 50 years has shown that it's impossible for an opposition to win government for the first time on a platform of wide ranging or major changes. Because if it tries, as the Liberals did under John Hewson in 1993, and Labor did under Bill Shorten in 2019, the incumbent government will use all the vastly superior resources at its disposal to frighten the wits out of the electorate in order to remain in office. So although they deny it, the Labor Party adopted a small target strategy in the lead up to the 2022 election, minimizing the points of difference between it and the government and focusing on a range of measures where it chose to make a difference. So the government certainly has a mandate, for example, to support bigger increases in the minimum wage, to spend more on improving standards of aged care, to make childcare cheaper, to increase the supply of social and affordable housing, and to strengthen the national broadband network, for example. But it doesn't have much of a mandate to embark upon budget repair, which in its first few days in office, it seems now to regard as more important than it did during the election campaign or beforehand. Indeed, its costings document released a few days before the election said that Labor intended to increase the budget deficits in prospect for the next four years by a relatively trivial amount, but nonetheless, they don't come to office with a pledge to do things to reduce the budget deficit nor apart from the impact at the margin that things such as improving access to childcare may have on productivity, the government doesn't have much of a mandate to pursue reforms that would make a serious impact in lifting Australia's abysmal rate of labour productivity growth over the last 10 years. What I think the government needs to do, whilst keeping to the promises it made during the election campaign and not eroding the trust which the public has placed in them, is to begin laying the, the groundwork for a more expansive mandate 
to seek for a second term of office, bearing in mind that not since 1931 has any first term federal government failed to achieve at least a second term. They may make a start on that at the forthcoming employment summit, which obviously has echoes of the national economic summit that Bob Hawke instituted in the early days of his government in 1983, and which in turn created a platform for some of the things that the Hawke government subsequently went on to do with great benefit to the Australian economy. The government will need to do all these things in the face of an economy that has a pretty strong head of steam at the moment, which is also showing up in a higher than expected rate of inflation, which will almost certainly mean that the Reserve Bank will be lifting interest rates by considerable margins over the next 12 to 18 months, so that next year, the outlook for the economy may be very different from what it appears at the moment. That's very interesting, your argument about laying out for a second term. That is interesting because one of the key issues, I think, is tax reform and uh, changes the tax system. Basically, if the new government wants to lift spending in aged care, improve spending on NDIS, improve funding for universities and TAFE, and of course, attend to upgrade defence, we're going to have to look at our taxes. Indeed we are. And that is the core of the longer term budgetary problem which Australia faces, that the public clearly wants increased spending on aged care, on the NDIS, and more broadly, I think, on health care. The public is also likely to get, whether they want it or not, increased spending on defence. But so far, neither side of politics has really been willing or able to talk to the Australian people about the, the best, the fairest, and the least economically damaging ways of raising what may well be an additional two percentage points of GDP in terms of revenue. The only specific revenue measure for which the new government has any kind of mandate is a further crackdown on tax avoidance by multinational corporations through inflated interest and intellectual property royalty payments that they use to divert profits made in Australia to low tax jurisdictions overseas. But the Labor Party's costings indicate that that would raise less than $2 billion over a four-year period, which is helpful at the margin, but is hardly going to solve the problem. The Labor government has committed to upholding the third tranche of the tax cuts that were legislated a few years ago by the Morrison government, even though those disproportionately benefit the top tranche of Australian income tax uh, payers. And the only room for manoeuvre that the new government has left itself is that it's rejected the commitment to capping tax revenues at the entirely arbitrary 23.9% of GDP that the Morrison government had imposed upon itself. But while that might allow the government to avail itself of the impact of bracket creep on total tax revenues from personal income taxpayers, and to bank any windfall gains that might come from further upward revisions to the outlook for commodity prices, it certainly doesn't give the government any room ahead of the next election to make major changes to the structure of our taxation system. And that's one of the things that I think the government could usefully commission 
an inquiry into with well-chosen terms of reference and staffed by people who it can trust to come up with sensible answers, it doesn't need to embrace that report in the same way that the Rudd government dealt with the Henry Review, that is keeping it under wraps for almost six months, releasing it two days before the 2010 budget with a long list of things that it wouldn't do and only picking up one of what ultimately turned out to be a flawed measure, the so-called resource rent tax. Uh, I think the government, if it goes down that path, would need to adopt a very different approach to managing the recommendations of any such review. But that would, I think, be the best way of... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Creating a path to securing a mandate for more broad-ranging tax reform. And the model for doing that, ironically, is the way John Howard went about gaining a mandate for the introduction of the GST. He came to office at the 1996 election promising that there would never, ever be a GST. But once he had assumed the role of prime minister and governed competently in his first term, he was able to use the political standing and capital that he had accumulated as a result to make the case to the Australian people for wide-ranging tax reform, including the introduction of the GST. He delivered that in his second term and went on to win a third and fourth election with bigger majorities than he got at his second election. Indeed. So they would be looking for John Howard as a model. Well, indeed, as I would argue, they looked to John Howard in 1996 as a model for this election, because remember, the Liberal Party lost an election in 1993, which everyone expected them to win, under a leader who couldn't sell, a very expansive range of policies, some of which were unpopular. Uh, Bill Shorten made exactly the same mistake in 2019, and it would appear that Labor under now Prime Minister Anthony Albanese adopted a very similar strategy to the one which John Howard did ahead of the 1995 election. And while I would not expect Prime Minister Albanese to follow John Howard in terms of divvying up his campaign promises into core and non-core promises, and I think that would only have worked once, I would expect the broad approach of sticking to the promises made during the most recent election campaign, but seeking to argue in the rundown to the next election in 2025 for a broader mandate to tackle effectively some of the serious longer-term challenges that Australia faces would be a politically feasible strategy for them to follow. Indeed, but the other issue too is uh, how are they going to fix the budget? Because, I mean, there's billions of dollars in deficit, there's a trillion dollars of debt, and it's it's much worse than they thought, according to Chalmers. Well, yes, that's certainly what 
uh, Dr. Chalmers has said in his first week in office, and of course, in that sense, he's following a pattern that newly elected treasurers at the, both the federal and state level have done uh, probably since Bob Hawke did it in 1983 to get their first briefing from treasury officials upon coming to office and say, oh dear, uh, the cupboard is bare and we can't possibly keep all of our promises. Now, I don't think that's what the new government is going to do, but if the budgetary situation is significantly worse than had previously been disclosed, and I'm not sure that it is by a big margin, because after all, under the Charter of Budget Honesty, the secretaries of the Departments of Treasury and Finance do independently and without interference from politicians set out their estimates of the budget outlook in the weeks before the election is taken and in their pre-election economic and fiscal outlook that was issued at the beginning of the campaign, the heads of the departments of treasury and finance put forward forward estimates that were not materially different from those that were included in the last budget of the Morrison government that Josh Frydenberg brought down at the end of March. Of course, there are some things that have changed since then and there will probably be further revisions to economic numbers that affect the shape of the budget. But the key point I think is that the Albanese government and Treasurer Chalmers do not have from the people a mandate to undertake either swinging expenditure reductions or major revenue raising measures. And I think the most effective strategy for them, bearing in mind that the history suggests that they will get a second term in office as long as they avoid scandals and uh, breaching promises that they've made during the election campaign is to govern competently, gain the trust and respect of the people so that when they go to the next election seeking a mandate to tackle some of these issues, the people will give it to them. The one thing that they do have on their side, I guess, is that although we do have, although the government has a very large amount of debt to service, the cost of servicing it remains relatively low because although interest rates are rising and will rise further, they are nonetheless low by historical standards. And a fair amount of the debt that's been accumulated over the first few, over the last few years has been financed by issuing longer dated bonds at relatively low interest rates. So in the same way that a home buyer who fixes his or her mortgage at the bottom of the interest rate cycle has some latitude when variable rates start to rise, the government also has some time up its sleeve in terms of the cost of servicing this vastly higher level of debt before the need to take major actions to put the budget on a pathway eventually towards surplus uh, becomes more urgent. Right, okay, but uh, that will be a major issue now ahead. Well, it's a long-term issue. As I say, I don't think particularly given some of the risks in the international economic outlook, uh, the slowdown in China that's been exacerbated by Xi Jinping's pursuit of zero COVID above all other objectives, but also the growing risks of a recession in Europe as a result of huge increases in energy prices in particular, and in the United States as a result of the Federal Reserve's determination from a position of being behind the curve to bring inflation back down from over 8% to 2% over the next 18 months to two years, they don't know how much interest rates need to rise in order to achieve that goal. In those circumstances, there has to be some risk that they raise rates by 
more than necessary. And in those circumstances, the government does need to tread carefully and avoid an abrupt tightening of fiscal policy. So there are various challenges ahead for the Albanese government in terms of raising revenue for its next term and changing the tax system and fixing the budget and treading these international waters. Indeed, there are. And that's why I think that a sensible, prudent course of action for them would be to commission the best advice they can get from respected sources to help them craft an agenda that will enable them to address seriously and successfully these longer term challenges, whilst as any government in a democracy needs to do, retaining the trust and support of the Australian people. Well, so let's like those are very sobering words and thank you very much for your time that's a pleasure Leon. good to thank talk you. to you so what's happening in the news well australian home prices have fallen nationally for the first time in at least 20 months according to two leading monthly indices both indices from CoreLogic and rea's prop track put the national monthly fall at about 0.1 percent CoreLogic records that as the first monthly decline since september 2020 while prop track has it slated as first falls since the COVID-19 pandemic started. CoreLogic reported much bigger home price falls for Sydney, minus 1%, and Melbourne, minus 0.7%, dragging down the national average, while PropTrack estimated both cities ease 0.3%. And the Australian economy slowed to 0.8% in the March quarter due to floods, following a rise of 3.6% in December. The economy grew 3.3% year on year. And Peter Dutton, has lashed Australia's top corporate executives for siding with Labor and other parties, saying he would focus on policies to benefit small business as the Liberals' new federal leader. Mr Dutton said on Monday the Liberals had become estranged from big business in recent years and he wanted to be a voice for the forgotten people in small and micro business. He accused business leaders of focusing on social policies while failing to speak out on economic issues, including industrial relations, tax and wages reform. The new opposition leader's view was promptly rejected by some of Australia's leading corporates who accused Mr Dutton of misreading the situation if he interpreted socially responsible positions they had adopted on climate change or gender equality as a repudiation of the Liberal Party. Mr Dutton, the former Defence Minister, who said some chief executives were now closer to the other parties than the Liberal Party, was critical of the absence of strong voices that we would have seen even a decade ago within the last generation of business leaders. Leading corporate figures said big business policies on economic issues, which some might perceive as closer to the Liberal zone, did not mean their views on social matters were a no-go zone for conversation and left to the government to decide. One senior business figure said union officials would scoff at the suggestion big business prefers Labor when the top corporates continued to advocate the company tax cuts, industrial relations reform and wage rises linked to productivity. An AGL. The largest Australian electricity provider has abandoned a controversial plan to split its coal-fired power plant from its retail electricity business following weeks of pressure from tech billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks for faster climate action. The board said on Monday that it would back down from the proposal, announcing a review of the company's strategic direction and a renewal of the company's leadership involving half of AGL's current board departing. Central to Cannonbrook's opposition to the demerger was a pace of AGL's plan to shut down its coal-fired power stations, which climate advocates and many investors warn is out of step with the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. Earlier this year, AGL brought forward the closure of its Bayswater coal plant in New South Wales from 2035 to 2033, while Loyang A in Victoria's Latrobe Valley would have its 2048 closure date brought forward to 2045. The company's third coal-fired power station, Liddell, is due to close next April. 
However, campaigners and some shareholders have been pushing for the company to align its closure dates more closely with the United Nations calls for developed countries to quit coal-fired electricity by 2030. Since becoming AGL's biggest shareholder, Kenan Brooks has made it clear he will continue to use his influence to advocate for accelerated closures by 2035. Shareholders in AGL, which has assets spanning fossil fuels and renewable energy, have seen the value of their holdings collapse more than 60% in the past five years. This has largely been because the influx of cheap renewable energy across the East Coast has eaten into the profits of coal-fired power stations, which account for the bulk of the company's profits. The change came about after Cannonbrooks launched a large-scale campaign, Keep It Together Australia, arguing the AGL split would leave two smaller companies less able to fund accelerated closures of coal-fired power stations in line with global climate targets and risk leaving those generators as stranded assets. Shareholders have been set to vote on June 15 on a proposed split of AGL's retail operations from its ageing carbon-intensive assets. The company now concedes the plan will not secure required 75% approval from voting shareholders and says it will report back to shareholders in September after completing a review of, the, of its strategic direction. The review will consider how the company can create long-term shareholder value amid accelerating pressure to decarbonise and provide affordable energy and any new approaches for alternative third-party transaction. The company plans to undertake further consultations with parties including Cannonbrook's Grok Ventures, shareholders, communities and government, and says the demerger proposal has so far cost $160 million, following estimates it could cost $260 million. And Crown Resorts has been hit with a record $80 million fine over its illegal practice of accepting Chinese bank cards at its Melbourne casino to fund gambling and disguising the transactions as hotel expenses. The gambling giant processed $164 million in China union-paid card payments and netted more than $32 million in revenue through the scam between 2012 and 2016. The matter came to light last year during Victoria's Royal Commission into the group. The newly formed Victorian Gambling and Casino Control Commission said on Monday afternoon that it would impose an $80 million fine on the James Packerback group over the scandal. It is the first time Victoria's hit Crown with a fine of more than $1 million after the state increased the maximum penalty it could impose to $100 million last year following the explosive Royal Commission. The scam breached the prohibition on Crown accepting credit or debit cards at the casino for gambling and its obligation to keep accurate accounting records. It also left Crown susceptible to dealing with the proceeds of crime. Crown said in a statement that it acknowledged the historic failings and that it was committed to the delivery of a comprehensive reform and remediation program. The Commission said it was also considering further penalties against Crown related to wrongdoing uncovered during the Royal Commission which, as with inquiries in New South Wales and Western Australia, found Crown was unfit to hold its casino licence. The casino group still faces a blockbuster fine, which could run to hundreds of millions of dollars, from the financial crimes watchdog Austrac, which has alleged Crown took $1 billion in revenue from the high-risk VIP customers, including some with known criminal links. Crown's regulatory pain comes as a takeover by New York-based private equity firm Blackstone reaches its final stages. Shareholders, including major investor James Packer, voted to accept the $8.9 billion deal on May the 20th. Blackstone still needs final approval from state gambling regulators before it gets the keys to Crown's casinos in Melbourne, Sydney and Perth. And Australian farmers are set to deliver a third consecutive bumper season of crops, but food prices will continue to climb due to a maelstrom of pressures on supply chains. This winter, farmers will capitalise on plentiful rains to plant a record 23.83 million hectares, almost the size of the UK, up 1% on last year. But quality of production may be hit by waterlogged fields, and some farmers have had to re replant multiple times due to floods. And food prices will continue to rise as the war in Ukraine, fuel costs, labour shortages and weather disasters inflict unprecedented havoc on food supply chains. 
Grocery food prices have jumped 4% in the previous three months alone. Farmers face higher costs for diesel and agrochemicals such as pesticides and expect to cut back on fertiliser use. A report by ANZ has warned of a prolonged food crisis into 2023 caused by lost exports from Russia and Ukraine and poor global harvests from extreme weather. And business leaders have warned companies face apocalyptic damage from spiking gas prices as motorists confront months of pain at the Bowser, with petrol to remain above $2 a litre, driven by Europe's oil blockade on Russia. The rise in energy costs, coupled with a predicted 10% rise in food prices, threatens to deepen cost of living pressures and extend a surge in inflation, which reached a 20-year high of 5.1% in the March quarter. The rise in global oil prices to above US $120 a barrel came up after the European Union said it would ban all imports of Russian oil by ship in retaliation for the Ukraine war, a move that would block about two-thirds of Russia's oil, oil exports. The Australian energy market operated on Tuesday scrambled to impose a cap on gas markets in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane after wholesale prices soared 80 times normal levels. Anthony Albanese said briefings with Treasury and financing included issues of cost of living. The spike in wholesale gas prices followed a coal snap that drove demand higher, exacerbated by last week's collapse of energy retailer Western Energy. The rise in energy prices came as David Williams, an investment banker specialising in agribusiness, predicted food prices would soar 10% this year. And ANZ could pay another hefty price for its faltering technology and processing systems, after ASIC said it was suing the bank for alleged unlawful fee slugging that has raked in tens of billions of dollars in revenue since 2016. ASIC alleges that between May 2016 and November 2018, around 165,750 ANZ customers were inappropriately charged cash advance fees and interest for credit card withdrawals. It is alleged that the fees and interest were charged because ANZ's banking platforms, including the ANZ app and the internet platform, were displaying incorrect account balances. ASIC also alleges that ANZ has not yet fixed the technical problem and the customers continue to be affected. ANZ has stumped up more than $10 million to compensate 165,750 customers affected by the system's failure before November 2018. However, ASIC is seeking compensation for customers affected by the problem in the last four years and pecuniary penalties because the bank's alleged failure to do all things necessary to ensure its credit activities were conducted efficiently, honestly and fairly. ANZ said it was considering the ASIC legal claim but did not comment on whether it would defend the federal court action. And consumers' advocates are calling on the federal government to urgently regulate cryptocurrency exchanges to protect consumers amid evidence of volatile, complex and high-risk products are causing severe financial harm. The call comes amid carnage in the cryptocurrency market with the price of Bitcoin 55% lower than its peak in November. Algorithmic stablecoin TerraUSD trashed in early May, surprising investors who thought it was supposed to be a more secure asset than other crypto investment. Choice Senior Policy Advisor Patrick Viret said Australians expected the same level of consumer protection and regulatory oversight for crypto assets as they do with other financial products. Crypto is not currently recognised as a financial product under the financial services laws that ASIC enforces, except for exchange-traded funds linked to crypto assets. Mr Viret said exchanges that sell or control crypto assets need to be subject to strong legal obligations, including a ban on market manipulation. A national accountancy firm 
Picture Partners has been accused of knowingly assisting former businessman Max Twigg to rip off his mother in a lawsuit that could leave the firm on the hook for $140 million in damages. Diane Twigg is alleging Picture Partners breached its fiduciary duties to her and several family trusts several times from 2007 to 2019 as part of a fraudulent and dishonest scheme set up by Mr Twigg and allegedly assisted by the firm in which Mr Twigg spent tens of millions of the family's dollars on an extravagant lifestyle. Mr Twigg sold the family waste business Twigg Group to clean away for $155.8 million in 2007 and put the proceeds, bar $5 million for his mother and each of his sisters, into a family trust account which he then spent on luxury cars, houses and various properties including the iconic Byron Bay Beach Hotel without their knowledge. Ms Twigg and her two daughters successfully sued him over these unauthorised transactions in 2020 with the New South Wales Supreme Court in, in a decision upheld by the New South Wales Court of Appeal last week slamming his conduct as dishonest and ordering him to repay his family. But while the three women have received $30 million compensation from Mr Twigg's assets, Ms Twigg is now seeking the balance of the alleged losses from picture partners as advisors to her, her son and several family trusts on tax accounting, corporate governance and structuring, succession planning and trust distributions. In a statement of claim filed in the New South Wales Supreme Court last week, she claimed that Picture Partners breached its fiduciary duties to her and three separate trusts of which she is a trustee by assisting Mr Twigg in his fraud. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to the founder of the non-alcoholic beer brewer, Heaps Normal, Peter Brennan. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about the election of the Albanese government. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.